Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. Last Sunday, as the Russian invasion of Ukraine dominated the world's headlines, I found myself having to preach on this teaching of Jesus, do not resist the one who does evil. Needless to say, that passage raises a lot of questions, and in this episode, we're going to explore some of them. We'll be talking about how to take Christ's words seriously and not rush to explain them away before their full impact is felt. We'll try to understand the teaching of non-resistance in the broader context of Scripture, and then we'll dive into the complicated theological question of whether it's possible to wage a just war. Your sermon this last Sunday, I thought was fantastic. So we'll start off on a great note, wherever we go from here. Um, You talked about Jesus' teaching on, I guess you could say, retaliation, nonviolence. Would you would you say retaliation is is the right term to describe all of those things that he's encountering? I think it is. That's often the heading that you would find yeah. under that or over that passage would be something like you know law of retaliation or something. It's basically the passage where Jesus says to turn the other cheek right. and to go the extra mile. Sure, and everyone, yeah, everyone's familiar with with that passage, and. You know, the, the thing I appreciated about your sermon the most was that you let it, I think you let the full weight of Jesus' teaching really just land on us. And and I think that's important with these passages because Jesus' teachings, they're kind of radical in, in the Sermon on the Mount. And I find myself anyway stopping mid-sermon and uh, writing down some, some qualifications, some yeah, buts along the way. and. And I think maybe maybe we could talk about some of those in this episode. I want to I want to address some things or ask you some more questions, but I mean I should stipulate it would be so easy to preach <laughs> through Matthew 5 and basically preach the sermons on what Jesus doesn't mean by this. Yeah. You know, if if it was uh when you don't have to turn the other cheek or what what does uh, turning the other cheek mean and what doesn't it mean? You know, that sort yeah. of thing I think is is immediately where we go. Right. And so there is a value in in pressing Jesus's words so that we don't immediately let ourselves off the hook. Yeah. Yeah, when when can I kill someone? When right. can I right. have a divorce? Right. I think we yeah, we immediately are are seeking those those uh qualifications out. So nonetheless, I think you did a you did a great job letting the teaching really really hit us and I was reminded of just Jesus' fundamental nonviolent behavior and posture in the world and his his demands on his people to be nonviolent and the word you use generous in return, you know, not seeking justice only, but generosity in our approach towards our our enemies. I'm curious though if you got any questions after the sermon from anyone. Inevitably <laughs> As we're working through what this all means, I mean, we we do end up having to have conversations about uh, the exceptions and the qualifications, and you know what what this actually means and doesn't mean, and and that's a legitimate uh, discussion to have. Yeah. It's just I want to have it 
a little bit downstream and not front and center yes. because I, I don't want to just immediately take everything Jesus says and, 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 and say, but of course you couldn't actually do this. Right. You know, right. but, but recognizing that Jesus is teaching the law in such a way that it brings us all under condemnation, that that's the point that he's setting the bar high enough to where we can recognize that we can't possibly meet it. Once you see that, I think you stop needing to find the wiggle room. Mm. Uh, you, you stop needing to, to figure out how you can justify yourself on this point. And so that, that's what I'm trying to do is, is help us understand Jesus's words, not how to let ourselves off the hook, mm. but really how to feel the ways in which we are condemned by them. And then to look at, at where there is an accommodation to our weakness. Yeah. Maybe it's the sign of a, a guilty conscience underneath the law that we try to find wiggle room, try to find ways out, which is great. We should, yeah. we should feel that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just that we should meet it head on mm -hmm. and, and not try to justify ourselves. We should, we should see it as an opportunity to uh, repent and seek forgiveness rather than to rationalize right. why, you know, whatever Jesus says, we have to live this way. So another approach to this passage, though, would just be to take Jesus at his word and to say, okay, I, we as a, as a church community, we will, we will never be violent. We will, we will always turn the other cheek. We will, you know, literally do all these things that Jesus says. And let's call that pacifism. And some Christians ascribe to that kind of a view. Do you think that that's what Jesus is teaching here? I don't think it is, and yet I am very comfortable with forcing us to think about that before we dismiss it out of hand, Okay, if that makes sense. That ultimately, as you follow through and you, you take the whole counsel of Scripture, I think we're going to find the, the reality is more complex than, than simply pacifism. And yet... If we get there too soon, I really do think we blunt the edge of what's being said, because there is an ultimate sense in which perfect righteousness does look like that absolute generosity that, that answers violence with love, not with violence. And so if we're too quick to move past the, that initial reading, I think we do actually lose the 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 full import of what Jesus is saying. And and you only have to look at the example of Jesus to see this. When Jesus talks about turning the other cheek, when he talks about uh, paying what isn't owed, like going above and beyond, he's literally describing how he will act. You know, we looked in the sermon at Jesus before Pilate and the way that he refuses to quote unquote, defend himself or engage in the process. And I think in those actions, he's showing us what he means by these words, this description of righteousness. Now, at the same time, we do see elsewhere in scripture accommodations made to our own imperfection and, and examples where, you know, we have, for example, the apostle Paul who uses the fact of his Roman citizenship 
in order to kind of, I want to say work the system, but he takes advantage <laughs> of the fact that that citizenship has certain privileges attached to it in order to advance his ministry. And so that's a legitimate way of going about things, obviously. And yet the highest way of going about things is obviously going to be the, the way that we see Christ do it. And so um, I'm not saying that that we can all easily do what Jesus did, but I don't want to <laughs> make it so that we're essentially saying, you know, the example of Jesus here isn't, isn't of, of value to us that, that we immediately kind of um, tell ourselves, well, that can't be the answer. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think it does. And the way I've heard this conversation framed in the past is, is between idealism and realism. Mm -hmm. And so on the one hand, you have idealists who, who I guess would be the pacifists here. And they would look at the example of Christ and his teaching. And, and like you said, they would affirm, yeah, this is the, the better way. You know, it, it is the righteous thing, the good thing to respond to violence with generosity and love and not tit for tat kind of a thing. Even if it's not effective in this world, you know, and even if we're sinful and we'll never do it like Christ did and, you know, our situations make it very difficult, we should still strive to do precisely that in every instance. And that's maybe idealistic, but it's what Christ taught. On the other hand, you have some realists who would say, well, that is the ideal way, but because of our situation, because of this fallen world, because of our fallen hearts, we have to make these accommodations. And so that's, I guess, where a theory of a just war would come in, or maybe even a theory of, of self-protection when, sure. when you're attacked or something like that. And well, I think we can see even in Jesus's teachings, uh, a little bit of that framework, right? So Jesus, we've already seen him talking about the bill of divorce. Mm -hmm. And the way that Moses makes an allowance for divorce in some cases, but that this is not the way things were from the beginning, that this is an accommodation to life in a fallen world, that this is one of those instances where the law is regulating our bad behavior, our hardness of heart. Mm -hmm. So if you take that into account, now Jesus isn't abolishing the law. He's not... Uh, undoing what Moses has done. He's not like rolling back that accommodation, but he is demonstrating and, and, and highlighting the fact that it doesn't represent a righteous ideal. So yes, you can in the law under certain circumstances have these grounds for divorce. And Jesus reiterates those grounds in, in certain areas. However, he also like, calls us to this, this higher, um, like unfallen ideal. Mm -hmm. And so there, I think you can kind of see like some, some idealism and some realism side by side. So that in, in practical terms, uh, a person today might have biblical grounds for divorce. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, they might see in scripture a call to, uh, stay with that partner to forgive, and that that might be a higher calling. And yet, we wouldn't judge the person who has biblical grounds for doing what they have grounds to do, even though we would, you know, celebrate 
the person who does not. And so we could see both of those circumstances and uh, appreciate, let's say, the, the ideal or the realistic view depending on the individual and the circumstances. And so I think, you know, self-defense is a great example as well, where, uh, yeah, there's a sense in which to give one's life uh, would be a higher calling, a more righteous thing than to take a life in order to preserve your own. But we also recognize uh, a right to defend oneself, to defend life, uh, the lives of others. Uh, these questions can become very complex once you take into account not only your own life, uh, but also the lives of those around you. And so, again, we, we try to think uh, faithfully, but also take into account the complexity of the situation. So at no point are we getting kind of simple uh, black and white marching orders that mm -hmm. take away the need to be wise. Right. Um, there's a reason why such a large amount of scripture is devoted to wisdom literature. We're intended to develop discernment. God doesn't just give us these simple checklists. But at the same time, I think we do have this constant vision of what holiness looks like, what, what pure righteousness looks like. And it's held out to us so that we see where we do fall short. And rather than trying to rationalize those things and say, well, no, no, that's, it's, it's good to kill sometimes. I think it's better for us to acknowledge there are things that we do because of the hardness of human hearts, because of the fallenness of the world. But even though our actions are justified, we still grieve at them and we still seek God's forgiveness for them. Yeah. I, I think this is so interesting because it's it's just so different from the way we're used to thinking about morality, I think, because morality is about right or wrong. And and what I hear here is some new category, maybe it's a category of wisdom in a, in a sense, where, where where an action is justified but lamentable or not right. a, not ideal or but, sad. But this is it like it it may not be sort of this simple sort of black and white of moral reasoning, but it does reflect a human reality that we see constantly around us. For example, since you were talking about self-defense, it's mm -hmm. it's not unusual. In fact, I would say it's it's very common for people who are legally justified in taking the life of another in self-defense to feel remorse and grief and to to look at that as if it were tragic and they they regret it. Right. Even though they can see the necessity of their actions, they grieve at those actions, they don't celebrate them, they don't feel great about it, uh, don't feel justified. And if you sat down with them and say, hey, why are you feeling so bad? What you did was perfectly legal and you should feel good about it. That does not correspond to their experience of it. And I think even in that, we see a reflection of, of this complexity. Like we're conscious of the fact that there are things that we may be justified in doing that still aren't the way things ought to be, that still reflect a brokenness to the world, and, and we can only grieve at them. One example that comes to mind is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a part of an attempt to assassinate Hitler right. and ultimately failed. But in, in his writings, he, he talked about his reasoning and, and why he would go to, to murder a man, attempt to murder a man. And 
And he ultimately came to a similar conclusion where he didn't actually think assassinating Hitler would be right, but that it was necessary given the circumstance. And that essentially, if they were to have gone through with it, he would have needed to repent and ask for forgiveness for this action, even though he felt like he needed to do it. And it's it's so hard to to fit that all in our minds. But if you look at the situation, I think it kind of makes sense. It does. And I know that there are going to be at least some people listening to this really frustrated <laughs> that that we would present a question as as clear as should we assassinate Hitler as if it was full yeah. of moral ambiguity. Well, we're not giving our views. That's just right. But, but I, I think I guess I would just say, like, I I much prefer for people who have to do things like that, even if they feel justified to be conflicted about it than not. And the thing that I think we could all use more of is that that self-interrogation where we don't just automatically assume that whatever advances our interests or whatever uh, helps our side or whatever makes us feel good must automatically be justified and be what God wants. Yeah. So if we start with the dilemma and, and and having to sort of think it through, I think we end up in a better place. This is one of the reasons why it's always fascinated me that we look back, for example, on the American Revolution and just assume like, well, this is this obviously justified, highly Christian endeavor. And, and no one who participated in it would have had any sort of you know, misgivings or, or needed to justify themselves. But that is absolutely incorrect. And you can go back to uh, uh, firsthand accounts where you can see uh, theologians and political thinkers actually working through how to justify their actions and, and how to distinguish what they were doing from, you know, rebellion, which which scripture condemns. And, mm-hmm. and the feeling, like the need that drives you to do that kind of work, I think is a good one. And so, like I say, when, when Jesus gives us these teachings, I want to live with them and wrestle with them. I don't want to immediately find the loophole that lets us say, okay, turn the other cheek. That sounds great, but I, I don't really need to do that. You use the word generosity in your sermon as the counter response or the alternative to, to responding with violence. Could you unpack what, what that means in this context? I know it's a really heavy and important word, but what do you mean by generosity? Yeah. Like if you look at the examples that Jesus gives, you know, he, he talks about if you're slapped on one cheek, uh, turn the other cheek. If someone sues you to take your tunic, give them your cloak as well. Things like that, where the response to the the importunity, like someone is imposing on you, is asking something that they're not owed from you. And, and not only do you take it, but Jesus says you give back more. So you're being generous to people who actually don't deserve anything. Uh, you shouldn't have to pay them anything, and now you're giving them everything. And so all of his responses seem to have that in common, that, that the response is this, this over-the-top excess of giving in the face of what we might think of as unjust demands. And I think there's a, there's a, a powerful expression there of, let's say, God's glory 
because the idea that when you want to take something of mine, I give you that plus something else, that presupposes that everything I have comes from God, that I have no anxiety attached to the loss of any of it because God can restore all of it and all came from him in the first place. And he has some reason for this because he superintends all things. Like all of those assumptions need to be at play for you to, to view the loss of your dignity or the loss of your goods or your freedom, whatever it is, in the light that Jesus suggests. It kind of reminds me of something that, uh, I don't know, this has always appealed to me. Uh, I think it's Robert Louis Stevenson who mentions this in his essay, The English Admirals, but I might be getting that wrong. But but he talks about um, the English fleet when they are assaulting the Spanish city of Cadiz. And this is a famous incident in the, uh, I guess it would have been the late 1500s early 1600s, but, but the, the English are the underdogs, but you know, these Corsair fleet, they go in, they're going to try to cut out these ships from this Spanish port. So as they're sailing in, uh, the guns open up from the battery and they shoot all these cannon at the ships and the, I think it's the Earl of Essex who's in command and he gives the order to reply, but he doesn't let the English ships fire cannon. He has the trumpeters do a, a blast in the trumpets in answer. And I always think of that as, as kind of that, that flourish, right? That, that there is something about what Jesus is saying that is a, it's a flourish where it's maybe not meant to win the person over, you know, kill him with kindness, that sort of thing. But, but in the, the excess of it, it is an assertion of a higher power, mm. right? It, it, it is an invocation of the power of God. And, and it's very much in keeping with the way that Jesus speaks to Pilate, for example, you know, when, when he's not willing to acknowledge that Pilate exercises any authority or any power over him, that there's anything that Pilate can take from him. Uh, not at all. Jesus is the one who's, who's laying his life down and will take it up again. Now I'm going to be the person that says, yeah, but, <laughs> um, and I, I, I want to talk about a couple of things here, one, two, just like thoughts in my mind. One is about, you know, situations where there is a, a legitimate form of say oppression going on and, and G, you know, Jesus says to them, well, just turn the other cheek. You know, I'm thinking about the history of slavery in our country, right. you know, you can't say. Or it's a, it is a very hard thing to say to a, to an oppressed class of people. Just turn the other cheek. So I feel like we, we need to say something there. And and then related to that is just the history and the tradition of Christian just war. Sure. You know, sure. Kind of kind of a theoretical thing, but Yeah, I feel like so with let's say with the example of uh let's say civil rights or or yeah. you know infringement on rights, that kind of thing. So uh, Jesus can say, turn the other cheek more easily than I can say it to you. Mm-hmm. You know, that that um, I think Jesus can call all of us to this high standard, in particular because what he's doing there is he's, he's showing you what perfect righteousness would look like. 
you know, it's not like Jesus is saying, hey, just start turning the other cheek. It's going to be easy. You know, once you get into the hang of it, you'll find it's it's no trouble at all. You know, he recognizes you as a sinner will fall short of this like you've fallen short of everything else that he said so far. Mm-hmm. So he is, in a sense, the only one who could call you to the standard. The only one who could speak to you in your suffering and say, turn the other cheek is Jesus because he perfectly exemplifies that. None of us mm-hmm. have the moral authority that Jesus has. By the same token, though, none of us have uh, the moral authority from our experience to contradict what he says either, right? None of us, certainly not I as a pastor, can say, well, Jesus's words don't apply to you because of your situation. Of course they do. I mean, if he speaks them to us, they apply to all of us. So there's a big difference, though, between Jesus showing us what righteousness is and us taking advantage of that to let's say you know oppress or or take advantage of other people mm-hmm. right there's a big difference between jesus saying turn the other cheek and the government saying turn the other cheek right. you know or me saying you know here cameron i'm going to slap you and now you need to turn the other cheek that's mm-hmm. not apples and apples there so all of the examples that jesus gives are examples where the person he's speaking to responds in this generous way the generosity isn't uh, mandated, right? It's not a generosity that's that's forced upon you. Uh, there's a distinction there. So when we think about the larger issue, though, of, of conflict, you know, do nations need to turn the other cheek? Yeah. Um, that, again, is a fascinating question. And it is a a whole council of scripture kind of question as well. So I'm one of those people that is never going to tell you that one verse cancels out another and that you're going to find verses in the New Testament that render what God commanded in the Old Testament actually sinful. And because in the Old Testament we have God commanding people to do warlike things, I find it very difficult to say uh, yes, but now in the New Testament, it turns out that's actually sinful. So right. th- there has to be a harmonization. Like there has mm-hmm. to be a way where we can kind of see how all the pieces fit together. So you alluded to this already, but there were these various tensions in the Christian tradition, right? So we have pacifism and we also have, let's say, like a more militant strain, you know, that you see exemplified in the the crusading spirit where we're not concerned about going out and waging war the important thing is to wage war for jesus (laughs) and as long as you're doing that then then uh all bets are off but there's a a path between those extremes and it is the one that in reform theology the the path we've tended to travel and it corresponds to that just war idea that there's a, a a recognition number one that war is evil that war is bad and that in a in a perfect world you wouldn't have war that this is definitely an aspect of a fallen world and hardened hearts mm-hmm. so all war is evil if you must wage war that war can be just under certain circumstances so then the question is well what are those circumstances and and how should we understand that that uh conflict so i i pulled up the uh i think 
are there what five principles of a just war that I remember learning That's about right. in seminary? And let's see, I think I maybe you have you have them. I can pull them up here, but I was I was reviewing them before we met tonight. And they're sort of I mean, reasonable, I guess, when you think about it. So a just well, war can definitely only- now they f- they feel baked into the way we think about war because yeah. it's been an influential way of thinking. But sure. But yeah, work down the list. Yeah. Okay. So well, I should clarify. I think there are there are five there are five principles which would regulate if you go to war, and mm-hmm. then there are two that kind of regulate your actions within the war. And I know there are Latin phrases for those that I've forgotten. <laughs> so the first one, though. Um, when you're deciding should we go into this is a just war can only be waged as a last resort. So, okay, yeah, you've got to exhaust all your other options before you even consider that. Two, a war is just only if it is waged by a legitimate authority. Three, a just war can only be fought to redress a wrong suffered. So you're not out there just waging war on anyone, but you're you're responding to some wrong that's been done for a war can only be just if it is fought with a reasonable chance of success deaths and injury um basically death and deaths and injury that happen when they're totally hopeless you know you have you're just like throwing yourself into a battle is not considered a part of a a just war it's not justifiable and fifth the ultimate goal of a just war is to reestablish peace so I mean, there are a couple of observations you can make there. Um, like if you've ever wondered how in the history of warfare, you have all of these people who really seem like they're willing to fight to the death, but then they surrender. It has to do with this, that there's a certain point at which if the the the, the outcome is hopeless, yeah. that there is an obligation on the part of the commander to surrender rather than to cost the lives those men in the civil war, they're always talking about doing things to prevent the further effusion of blood, but, but, you know, they have this formula in place and it reflects this kind of thinking, you know, that there has to be, um, uh, a certain logic in order for a war to be just. So you talked about the, the authority that has to be established that the, the cause for the war needs to be a just cause that the ultimate goal is to establish peace. Anybody who's interested in, in thinking and reflecting on these questions ought to like watch or read Shakespeare's play, Henry V. Mm. Although we often think of that as, as like a glorification of war. In that play, a lot of these questions are touched upon. There's, there's an elaborate inquiry into whether or not Henry's war is a just war. He has to come up with arguments to justify himself. He gives a a, a speech where he cautions people who are opposing him that they uh, not let loose the dogs of war. You know, there's that sense that that war is evil and, and results in bad things and we should avoid it. And Throughout the the play, different aspects of the question, whether or not a king is responsible for the lives yeah. lost under his command, all of these things are explored. And, and it gives you a window into the tradition of, of Christians thinking through uh, what a just war might look like. Um, there are a couple of wrinkles, I think, that, that are worth 
looking at here. So Augustine is really the source for this way of thinking about war. The just war theory originates in Augustine's work. And in Augustine, he takes it even so far as to be able to, to rationalize killing itself that, that, that one could kill in love. Mm. And the idea is that the, you know, the magistrate who's going to war to establish uh, justice or to redress some grievance that can be justified in that way is essentially bringing, you know, violence to bear as a form of correction, like fatherly correction, to me, that sounds a little bit too much like the uh, the famous quote from the Vietnam War. You know, we had to destroy the village in order to save the village. <laughs> yeah. Um, in the Reform tradition, you can find thinkers who are are taking the the just war inheritance and are maybe developing aspects of it. And and one of those would be Pierre Viret, who was a contemporary of Calvin's, who wrote about just wars. And I went through an essay about his work to kind of refresh my memory here and was really intrigued by the way that he essentially follows Augustine when it comes to, you know, how to justify a war and how to conduct a just war. But he stops short of seeing the violence or the killing as as being somehow an act of love. He treats it more in the way that we were describing earlier, where it's it's more along the lines of what we might call a necessary evil, but that a person who uh, must kill, even if that can be justified in self-defense or in warfare, would would seek forgiveness. You know, would would acknowledge that uh, you know the thing that I've done is not a righteous thing. It's not a good thing to be celebrated, but something that I want God to uh, show me grace for, and so. I think there you see a, um, at least from my point of view, a, a closer, a closer hewing to the the doctrine we find in Matthew five, right, where the war might be just that you're participating in, but still it's a result of this fallen world. You know, it's not something that we do happily that we want to do that that we celebrate and and this is where i you know maybe it's a cultural thing but sometimes i sense that people that can find any justification for war will find any justification for war and and kind of revel in it you know like we're just the sort of people you know and maybe it's maybe it's an american thing sometimes because of our history but um you know it almost seems as if we we like the idea that we can defend ourselves. We like the idea that we're tough, that we have lots of weapons. And and that's much different. That's you know from just war thinking. Just war thinking is is kind of a tragic way like yeah, we we can we can do this, but it's it's tragic. Yeah, you know, and I think there are a lot of people who uh maybe combine both of those <laughs> aspects, you know, where you get a lot of bravado, but if you you push back a little bit, you would get a more considered response. I think that the problem though, is that our sort of mainstream cultural discourse often channels the bravado and not, not the more nuanced view. And so, 
it's it's not unusual to be able to contrast, for example, the like the experience of someone who's fought in a war versus the experience of someone who's only dreamed of fighting in a war right. and, and how different those those views can be. So I think that there is a proper place for a just conflict, but that we should not rush into it and we should not assume that whatever conflicts we want to engage in must therefore be just. Mm-hmm. That it is important for us to wrestle with and really to assume that our desire to go to war is an illegitimate one until we can prove otherwise. Given the fact that we are fallen human beings and that we are prone to justify all of our actions, I think whether we're talking on a personal level or on the larger political level, that kind of skepticism towards what comes naturally is a good idea. You know, it's, it's an aspect of discernment. We should also note, too, that, and, and I love this, that in the Reformed tradition, right from the beginning, there is this understanding that it would not be just to wage war to propagate the faith. Mm-hmm. Now, at the time of the Reformation, that was certainly not the dominant view in Christendom, right? In the late medieval world, crusading was the norm, and there was this assumption that that you totally could use military force to expand the borders of Christendom or to, you know, chastise the infidels. And so in the Reformation, you find not only that there's a belief that it, it it's not just to, you know, go on crusade against the Turks because they're Turks for no other reason, um, but also that it's not legitimate to take up arms against, you know, the other denomination of Christians. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of, I think, historically, we tend to look back at the wars of religion and, and, and think, oh, all these bloodthirsty people are trying to, you know, use their swords to, you know, force these people to be Protestant or force those people to be Catholic. The reality was much more complex than that. And although uh, in, in warfare, there are always people who are willing to, to take that view. And the fact is, during those wars, Geneva itself was neutral, was not belligerent. Geneva didn't have an army. They, they weren't out there on the field prosecuting battles. There was a, a sense that there was something questionable about that kind of activity and that it needed to be justified. So all that just to say, if you're trying to think scripturally about conflict, whether you know personal conflict or in this larger sense, there is a tradition of thinking biblically about what would make a just conflict or just war. But it requires a lot of justification in terms of why you would do it and also how you would do it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just let you off the hook to do whatever you want to do. Right. Yeah, I remember one of my professors in seminary who was teaching a class on this, and he said, if you look at those five principles, it would be very difficult to justify many or any of the wars of modern history. And and that's kind of the point of those principles, that's is right. to really make it difficult to have a just war. Um, and I, And he even said, too, you know, look at interpersonal conflicts that you have. Try applying those same principles to those 
those conflicts. And, and they're actually quite helpful. You know, am I the right person? Am I the authority to step in here? Is there, is there a good chance that I'm going to be able to resolve this or am I just going to make things worse? You know, interesting, interesting way to think about it. But I think you're right too, that it, it's good to, to make us pause, you know, adjust war theory is not just a, a green light for, for combativeness, but should make us pause and actually think back to that ideal that Jesus is pointing us to of, of generosity first, you know, can, can I be generous? Can I be over the top generous first? Um, and you know, and how can I not just can I, but you know, how, how can I do that in, in all of my relationships? Yeah. I love, I love that point. There's a, a, a piece in this essay on Vire's thought that brings a similar kind of logic to it. And it has to do with his advice for how to avoid conflict, okay. you know, how to who prevent war, basically. And as he's kind of listing his arguments, he says, uh, first and foremost, we should pray for peace and actively repent of our sins because it's it's sin that leads to conflict. It's sin that leads to war. So if we're actively repenting of sin and praying for peace, that's a huge mitigation against conflict. The second thing he gets into, though, is looking at the plight of the poor and um, what we might think of as like social circumstances, economic circumstances, uh, lo- like looking at the causes of conflict and trying to resolve those, trying to head things off before they get so bad that people feel like there's no other way for me to, to get what's coming, you know, apart from violence. Um, and then also he counsels a toleration for the beliefs of other people that if we cultivate a, a toleration for religious difference, for other kinds of difference that we're less likely to see, uh, waging war as a, a reasonable option. And if you think about those things, I think all of them in different ways exemplify that spirit of generosity that you see Jesus painting a picture of in Matthew 5, that they are conscious much more of the needs of those around us than they are of our own needs and and our own prerogatives. There's a willingness to give for the wholeness and the sake of others, even if they are in our minds, you know, not owed the things that, that we're giving them. And also a recognition of our own sinfulness and that all of this peacemaking needs to begin with um, repentance and self-examination. So probably if you're listening to this, you're not planning to wage war anytime (laughs) soon, but we are surrounded by conflict in the world and it's helpful to think about what would make a conflict just, but also on the interpersonal level to think about what it would look like for us to try to show more of the generosity that Christ shows even towards our enemies. I think I'll add one last thing, which is that you said, you know, to round things back to your sermon, I think one one of the points that I took away was that people who are forgiven and know themselves to be forgiven are the types of people who can live in that generous way. So that obviously connects to repentance. You know, I'm, if I'm repenting of my sin, I, I'm trusting that I'm a forgiven son of God. And, and that's the beginning of living that generous life towards others. So may we be the sorts of people who, who live in the forgiveness that God has given us and out of that, be generous.
That's all the time we have for now. Thanks for listening. The celebrated Reformed pastor Richard Baxter once wrote that a lawful offensive war is almost like a true general council. On certain suppositions, such a thing may be. But whether ever the world saw such a thing, or whether ever such suppositions will come to existence, is the question. In other words, it may be possible in theory, but it's probably never happened in practice. As we pray for the victims of war, it's not a bad idea to remember Jesus' words in the Beatitudes at the beginning of Matthew 5. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. If you've enjoyed the commentary, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.